how can we make an impact on the world with all of the injustice happening today? Can one person really make a significant change? Our guest today, Charm Taylor, is here to tell you that you can. I'm Gary Lewis, and this is another episode of The Soul Pod, and I am excited to introduce you to Charm Taylor. She is a musician, an activist, an artist, an educator, a mother, many different things. Charm embodies the spirit of what it means to be a change maker. Charm and I have a great discussion about restorative justice. We talk about equality. We talk about racism. We talk about reparations. We discuss spirituality and how that interplays with economics and how economics can help either divide or bring people together. Charm is a pragmatist in many ways. She's also a spiritualist. Charm believes that if we just focus on a localized issue, we can actually make an impact. And Charm is doing that in a variety of different ways. Her work as an educator in the prison system, her work with youth groups in New Orleans. She'll talk about all the ways that we can come together to bring change in this world today. I hope you listen to this podcast and take a lot from it. I know I gained a lot from listening to Charm. And thank you again for tuning into the Soul Pod. Charm Taylor, nice to have you on. Peace, peace, family. How you doing? So uh, this is going to be a different episode than people are used to for this show, just because Charm has presented me with the opportunity to merge my two worlds together here of... uh, mindfulness and meditation and trying to provide insights to people to live more authentic lives. And then also that's just my natural interest, whether it's professional, personal, whatever, it's everything for me. But then what I do in my day to day, I have been keeping kind of separate from this, this show. And I feel like it's pretty relevant to kind of have it all come together because I'm in the web three space and I am, my goal is to try to empower people by the work that I do. And I feel like it should align with everything that I'm talking about here on this podcast. So the way I met Charm was to, uh, was I went to a, 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 we'll call it a conference. It was a conference for Ethereum Denver. And uh, it's one of the first conferences of its type in the world. Um, started in 2018. So huge conference with all sorts of folks that are interested in cryptocurrency, that are interested in blockchain, that are interested in Web3, um, that are interested in NFTs, the metaverse, you name it. And decentralization, um, you know, just the philosophies of it. And so when I was in this conference, my goal was just to network with people, get to meet some folks in the space. And then I wandered up to this little enclave in the middle of uh, one of the buildings there called the Sports Castle. And that's where I found Charm and her crew of, you say metamatriarchs is the term, right? For everybody. And you had a huge setup. They had an amazing setup, which was a totally different vibe than the rest of the entire conference. It was just super chill, super relaxed, super... The minute you walked in, the energy was just on a different frequency. And it was obvious the intentionality that went into that. And then when I spoke with Charm, honestly, Charm, I didn't tell you this, but I was blown away by your energy. I was like, okay, we got someone who's emotive, someone who's different here, something coming out of her, some, some aura that's just powerful. And you embodied that. So I didn't even know exactly what you did at that time. I was just like... I knew that, you know, I would love to have a conversation with you where we could kind of just discuss what's interesting to you because I knew that it was clear you have something to say and you have such um, 
I felt placid. I felt tranquil. I felt at ease in your presence. And I feel like that's a gift because uh, not many people can do that, particularly in that setting where I was like all buzzy around, kind of everybody's just trying to give business cards, talk about what they're working on, all good stuff, but like very much rooted in conceptual, very much rooted in, um, you know, kind of intellectually, what are we doing? How are we engaging? Whereas I felt like my chakras were sort of, you know, rocked when I went into your space. And that's kind of what I was, I mean, I, I didn't expect it. And that's, I didn't know I was looking for that, but I was like, this is amazing. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, why don't you just talk a little bit about who you are and like what what brought you to Denver and what, what, you in, what you're interested in? So yeah, so first of all, thank you, Gary, for just affirming the alignment between our intention and our impact felt always means a lot. Um, so the roses, that's what we call ourselves, the roses, the metamatriarchs. And that's, you know, my my uh, flower ally is the rose. And really, if you think about um, the principality of roses, um, you have to approach a, a rose bush with care, with gent- being gentle, being intentional. There are thorns there. Um, there are buds there, though. There are things that, that are coming that are on the horizon and there are things that have already blossomed beautifully. Um, And so it's really like, to me, a holistic representation of what our journey is like this thing with love, whether or not it's unconditional, I'm not here to debate that, but I will say that it is an eternal thing. It's a thing that we long for. It's a thing that we enact, we can embody, we can attract. Um, and so we, you know, it's important for me as an artist, especially when, um, the, the journey gets hot, right. Or contentious or political or controversial, problematic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to just always come from a place of love. Like even when you have to correct something, refine something, challenge something like doing it from a place of like deep maternal love. Um, I believe um, my spiritual praxis, um, one of which teaches that, you know, everything that is here on the planet is sanctioned to be here. We learn that through um, our interactions with uh, tells us that everything that is here is sanctioned to be here. Um, And so you or I can't, you know, erase it but it's how we respond. It's how, what we generate as a result of our conditions, our circumstances, our experiences that really um, sort of changes, um, makes better uh, the human experience. So I am an artist, I'm an activist, I'm a mama, deep lover of the arts, um, deep lover of the divine. And um, I'm a teacher, I'm a spiritual guide, um, but I don't, you know, my goal is never to like save anybody or to sort of um, mold anybody's head that thing has already happened. But I do support people with just sharpening their tools and, you know, believing deeply in themselves and their ability to um, really influence this human experience to really make impact. Um, I do believe that that's what we were all sent here to do is to grow um, and to evolve. 
Um, and so I believed in, I believe, and I do see consciousness lifting. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of that. And I'm excited for the ways that Web3 is um, sort of evolving too, um, right before our eyes. And um, longtime educator, teacher, builder in real life. And right now, um, excited about the ways that my music and um, my organizing um, are just, you know, blossoming into new worlds for other people to experience and activating different spaces along the way for people to tap into this energy, which is just really like a creative nexus. And um, if I can, you know, influence hundreds of thousands of people to believe in themselves very deeply to do the things that they were sent here to do or to figure out what that is, I think that we're all better because of that. Not from doing the thing that we were told we had to do or to keep doing the thing that does not that brings us discontentment. Or to keep drumming at this thing because we're like, oh, ends meet, ends meet. We got to make ends meet. We got to work, 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 work to live. Um, instead of, you know, we have to do work that leads to change or do work that leads to liberation or do work that leads to fulfillment. I do. I, I, I believe in that. Um, so that's that's the work that I do. Um that's a lot. Thank you for sharing that. That's you've got, um, like you said, it's a nexus. So you've got a lot of it kind of collaborates and comes together naturally. It sounds like your art is probably influenced by your desire to restore and that everything else you're talking about, um, you sound, you know, I'm sure you express yourself coming from those positions, coming from that place. I think there's a lot to unpack. So I feel like I just want to kind of take one thing at a time and um, we'll, we'll keep Web3 on the back burner for now, because I feel like that's something that we could kind of hit later on. But I want to get to um, the restoration component of sort of of your activism and how it influences how you create and where it comes from. So so do you mind just kind of talking about what about restoration? Why is it something that's, that's at the forefront of your mind? Like, what about it? Um, do you want to do you want to how do you want to impact in that space? Well, um, I know that conflict is natural and I think it's, it can be healthy. And I believe that the tenets of restoration are like the oldest, most, um, to me are the, the remnants of, and really strong pillars of Afro indigenous community. So it takes me, it transports me beyond and before colonization. So I reach for it because in its processes and in its strivings, it takes us far from this space of productivity, efficiency, these terms that really drive capitalism and really drive colonial um, structures and systems. And it really sort of decolonizes the space and saying, no, this is going to take time. This is going to take longer. We're going to have to listen. Right. There's going to be some people in this circle that are going to speak. Um, we're going to share power now. We're going to share voice, et cetera. And so I'm really invested in circle culture as a cir circle keeper. Um, I do a lot around restorative approaches, restorative science. 
um, restorative justice. And really, I mm-hmm. think it's one of the most, you know, um, I, I certainly think that it is it is centering humanity in ways that other systems I have known or been conditioned under just doesn't do. And so I'm watching, you know, I have watched people both be impacted by the outcomes of restorative processes. And also I have personally have chosen it as a tool or it's chosen me and I've aligned myself with it as a means to resolve so much that's been unresolved in my own personal life. Um, I first learned of it inside of the criminal justice system. So I was building a school, a part of a team building a school inside of a youth detention center when I was first trained in restorative practices. And it felt so much so aligned with like intuitively what it is I believed in. Like I believe that if you could you could get at the heart, and I still believe it is, you can get at the heart of why a person does what they do. And also that most people want to get to make things right, even after they've done like the worst shit ever. Eventually, like nobody ever arrives wholly accountable. You wouldn't have to do the work. Right. Like you just wouldn't have to do it. But I do. But I have met so many people who are like, I just don't. I know that I got here. I don't know how I got here, but I know that no one ever asked me how uh, much uh, pain that I've endured or no one really listened to me when I was saying, hey, that hurts. So it's just really this when I when you think about the cycle of harm, you think about the cycle of restoration, all of it being very cyclical very earth-like, very um, transformative in that way. So I, I've, I believe in it a thousand percent. And I think that it's something that on a larger scale, more than just a buzzword, is something that if we are committed to in our own communities, amongst ourselves, and then in, within institutions that we're a part of, if we're applying those principles. I think that even those that say we need time and space, I'm not ready to resolve it right now. I need time. I need space. I'm still upset. All of that's like real, to me, invested hard work. And it's not as simple as being like, let's go in a room, talk about it. And there's a consequence or there's this apology, right? Um, It's gradual. It's intentional. And I certainly think that that's the kind of work that we need to be drumming at um, in our society. So, um, I do a lot of work with, um, anti-racism, um, pro-reparationist work, pro-black work, pro-inclusion work, um, how to build with people who've caused harm. I have clients that have caused harm that want to make it right or building action plans towards making it right. Um, and implementing plans that, um, can afford them, um, the space to, sort of actualize their accountability beyond just, you know, a PR statement or um, really reaching back to communities that they've harmed to ask, you know, how can I make it right? What are your needs? How can I meet your needs? 
So it's sort of like adult conflict mediation. And I laugh every time I think about it because I, back in the back in the 90s, you had these like conflict mediators on the schoolyards of most yeah, peer mediators in America. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. like it was like there, don't do drugs. And then it was like <laughs> everybody had the like bright orange traffic belts. <laughs> And I was that kid. I was that kid that right, had right. the right orange belt. It was like, mm. hey, guys, let's talk about it. No, nice. that's not right. <laughs> so, yeah. Man, uh, don't man. fight. But can't you see why he wants to fight? Because this is what you did, you know? So um, that's some of the work that I do. And my music is is that sort of that um, soundtrack to people who are who are living um, examples and embodiments of people who are doing change work, people who want to see the world better, who are either directly themselves um, impacted by systems, um, who are working to deconstruct and build anew, um, who are working to make sense of their conditions and are really in a space of like transformation and change. My music sort of sort of fuels that energy of mm. like, you got this, let's go, go higher go further, go beyond, mm. you know. Yeah, it comes through in your music too, very, very, very obviously, very clearly when you first listen to it. It's like, this is ascension music. This feels like, when I listen to it, I think of like limitless potentiality. That's like a word, I, the term I use. And it just feels like anything is, po I believe the universe holds us in abundance at all times and that we are, um, anything truly is possible. Um, yeah. I believe that. Like for anybody at any time, there's a story in, in uh, Buddhism about a monk called Milarepa. Milarepa had murdered a bunch of people and society had cast out Milarepa. And, uh, and and basically, you know, everybody wanted to just kill Milarepa and forget about Milarepa. Milarepa basically um, uh, never found a way to kind of make right in the traditional sense of like make the victims feel better or whatever, but just went about their path in a way to... Um, make do with make make right with god make right with the universe and through through a series of actions basically um became essentially one of the most powerful beings in in buddhism and in, in uh, uh somebody who was revered but this is someone who was cast out by society and i always think about like a story like that and um it's funny because I, I just want to kind of give my personal experience because when i was in when i went to law school i went to law school to become a human rights lawyer. So I, I had I worked at the UN while in college, uh, in in Department of Public Information it was called. So I sat in on Security Council meetings and I was in the General Assembly, and I, I wanted to be a peace negotiator. That's like my dream. I was gonna I was gonna work on the Georgia Abkhazia conflict, the Palestine Israeli conflict. I was gonna work on conflicts that were intractable over a period of time because that's what I studied in college. I studied philosophy, philosophy of religion, philosophy of spirituality. Um, world religions and so for me it was I, I like you i maybe not in the formal sense i don't wear the red ja the orange jacket but i was always a mediator uh if we were out with people who were getting into fights like i was always like why are we doing this what's going on let's figure it out like this is stupid um i hated fighting you know i hated violence i still hate violence i've always hated violence i was around it a lot um and it was just a, a mat it's just a fact of what was my experience but it was always really uncomfortable i always felt like an alien in those settings and so I tried to, from, you know, after that, the stuff I was around and around high school, I moved away from where I had lived. And um, I kind of wanted to make sure I was in a more sort of safe place, a more secure place, so I could then do the work that I had to do, you know, kind of repair what I had to repair. And that led me to these 
these interests, which was peace, peace negotiation. So I go to law school thinking I'm going to do that. And I graduate in a, uh, during the recession and there are no jobs at all. So like, there's no job. I can't get, I couldn't get an internship if I want a free one at the UN, if I wanted to, I couldn't get any work. Like, like it wasn't, I didn't have the choice to choose what I was going to do. I just had to come out and find work because I had loans and bills to pay. So I took the first job I got. It was a crappy job. I didn't like it. And I was miserable at it for like two years. And I was just thinking to myself, like, how am I going to, how am I going to get through? How am I going to get by? And in law school, I, I knew that this was going to happen. So I kind of um, had a bad experience because I didn't connect with it. I felt disingenuous and I didn't do well in law school. I kind of did, I, I bombed law school. I didn't do very well. So I came out and people kind of looked down on me. They were kind of like, you know, in law school, they were kind of like that guy, you know, he wasn't really a top law. You know, it wasn't like a good law student. He just was like, I wasn't in the clique. I wasn't really doing the things that everybody had to do to, to make it to the next tier. I just wasn't interested in that. Like, I, it's not why I was going to law school in the first place. So I always had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I was like, and I felt bad. I felt like I let myself down. I let people around me down. And then over a series of my career, I made a couple of choices and I got, you know, I kept kind of figuring out how to navigate and pay my loans off. And I was still doing work I didn't care about. And it wasn't like, I was not enriched at all. It was, it was, I felt empty inside, but I felt like I was just going through the motions of doing this work because I had to, because I worked myself into a bad spot. And uh, I eventually got to a place where I had the opportunity to join the DOJ, to join the U.S. Attorney's Office. Now, I had never, ever dreamed of being a prosecutor. I had never thought about it, but I knew that it held such prestige in the eyes of my professors, in the eyes of my classmates, in the eyes of others. And I felt such a void uh, internally that I felt like I was still trying to prove something to somebody. So I thought this opportunity is not going to ever come around again. I don't know what this job is. I'm not somebody. There are people that go to that job that are like, I want to do this work. Like, I want to be a prosecutor, blah, blah, blah. I wasn't one of those people. I was just somebody who was like, this opportunity presented itself. I feel um, like I... I still got my deficiencies and my insecurities. So like, this is maybe going to help me with that. And I went there and fortunately I wasn't really involved in like for the, I was there for a year and it was a one year trial and then they made an offer and I wasn't really involved in very intense cases. It was mostly misdemeanors and like low level cases. Cause I was just there for a year, but I did see enough to know how the system works. And I did work with agents and I did work with federal judges who have their own agenda, their own identity, their own power cravings, right? Most people that are gravitating to that work, which is why I felt like such an alienaire, love power. Most people want that job. It comes with a lot of discretion. Being a federal prosecutor, a lot of them were previous federal, pro uh, being a federal judge, a lot of them were pre previous federal prosecutors. Um, also, some of them were federal defenders. So you do have a variety of people on the bar and the federal defenders, by the way, are amazing skilled attorneys in their own right. And like, I was always jealous, <laughs> jealous of them because I was like, that's the work I want to be doing. How did I get here? But I got there because I just made a snap decision to take an opportunity that was in front of me that I felt like would fill a void. Fast forward to like six months into it. And I'm like, this job is not for me. I, I don't agree with punitive. Well, the one thing I agree with, one thing I like about a federal role as opposed to a assistant DA role is that you do have more discretion. And if you are a good person and you have good nature about you, you can make some better decisions than some other people who just have to follow follow what their boss says. If you're at a local DA's office, you don't have a lot of that discretion. Uh, still, still, a lot of the bias was toward people who had they wanted to impress the judge. The judge typically, depending on where you were, so had a more punitive stance than most other people in society, right? Because they're a judge in a criminal system for a reason. So um, 
I always felt like there was this weird charade going on where you want to do right by people. Like I was always like, dismiss, dismiss, dismiss. And my boss was like, no, no, we can't, <laughs> we can't dismiss every case. I was like, but they have a reason. He's like, yeah, but I mean, there's still a certain expectation. I'm like, well, what's the expectation? I'm like, if we can just, if we can free the courts up of, of nonsense and we could find the good in what someone's trying to do and see what they're doing that, that you know, to hear them out and actually understand there's something to this, why wouldn't we opt for that? You know, and there are just some people that don't, don't feel that way. And they're in that, and they're in that system and they perpetuate this. And so, we could talk about all sorts of stuff, federal uh, sentencing guidelines. There's mandatory minimums, right? There's all sorts of bullshit that you do this, some, some minor drug cases and you could end up, if you have a couple of offenses, you get a mandatory sentencing guideline, a mandatory minimum. And that means that that can't be, essentially can't be knocked down. In rare cases it can, but for the most part, you could get hit with three little charges of drugs and then all of a sudden you're doing 10 years for, for three little charges. Uh, and it, that was insane to me. And I was just like, no, I can't, this is not who I, I can't throw someone. First of all, I feel wrong putting someone in jail. Like I just don't believe in jail, <laughs> honestly. So I, that was probably a red flag. Like I get there and I'm like, I maybe, you know, until you're in it until I was in it, I was like, well, I'm not really in it. So I don't really, I mean, I don't think I disagree with the idea of jail. And now I actually do. <laughs> like, I didn't know that I actually disagreed with jail until I got there uh, because I always kind of bought into a bunch of hype about like keeping society safe, making sure, well, yeah, what are we going to do? Let everybody out who commits crime and just have everybody be unsafe? No, like what's the other option? We're going to arrest everybody and throw tons of people that shouldn't be in jail and in, in jail. Like what, what's the middle ground here? But that's all a long way of saying I realized my own turn, my, my personal situation was I had to get out of there. And I did. Uh, and I could, I had offers to stay there full time and, and uh, do a career there. And I just, it wasn't my thing. I knew it wasn't going to work for me. I didn't see it. Um, there were better ways I should be, I should be spending my time figuring out how we solve the issues in the first place. Like I knew that that was what I was called to do, but it took that experience. It also took me to have my own insecurities to get there and realize, oh shit, I'm here because I didn't use great judgment. I was trying to fill my own personal voids and you know, so I was coming with my own conditioning, right? Like everybody, like you said, everybody's got their own stuff, right? So everyone's bringing their own conditioning. And a lot of the prosecutors I dealt with, why do they have that power hunger? They have their own conditioning. They have their own issues, their own stuff that drove them there. So everybody's working with their own shit. And it comes, it, 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 the problem is we have this mechanism that is more punitive than, than restorative, that is more interested in an eye for an eye than, uh, than actually forgiving people and finding out why they're there. And we have, for whatever reason in America, as a society, some, the majority of us have perpetuated this system, which is clearly uh, the antithesis of what is good for our society, what actually is going to work for uh, a, a healing whole society that's going to bring us together. All this, this does, this hanging on to punitive nature is to divide us, obviously. And, all, and why is that happening? We can, there are a number of reasons why we could talk about the prison industrial complex, of course, right? There's, there's, there's money involved. There's a money incentivization involved. But there's all sorts of other interests too that keep it this way. There's just general divisiveness. There's racism. There's, there's uh, embedded racism. There's all sorts of reasons why these systems exist. And to your point, the reason why people, I, when I talk to people about restorative justice, and I've talked to people, I have friends who work for the Innocence Project. Um, I have friends who work for all sorts of different uh, uh, projects that are actually doing, that are engaging and actively trying to bring the work of restorative justice to the limelight and also to, to bring it into policy as well. But 
what they find is that when they're engaging most people who don't know much about it, who maybe care enough to be like, yeah, that, that's not right. We should do something, but aren't doing anything. It's this feeling of like, it's too overwhelming to start. Like, where do we start? This whole system has been in place for so long. How are we ever going to change the, the penal system? Like, that seems like such a, a wild idea that one person can, can make that change. And like you just said, that's total bullshit because it, it literally is going to take one person and one person and one person to, to start doing little pebbles in their local area, right? Start where you are locally. Start, start raising the issue in a local group. Start raising the issue with your local politicians. Start doing what you got to do in a small way. But, but, but it, seems so, it seems so frustrating and it seems so large scale. People give up. People that I know or, or they're just indifferent generally, which is sad and true. Like we have a huge swath of people that have the luxury of being indifferent until you've been personally impacted by it. You can be, you have the luxury of not giving a shit about what's going on in the prison system because you haven't had someone taken away from you. You haven't had a personal experience like that. Uh, yeah. So I just, just to your point, I, I think there's a reason why that, that it's such a difficult thing to get off the ground when in, when in reality, like you said, it shouldn't be because there are tangible steps. Yeah. It's actually not arduous at all. But it would have to be deliberate. It has to be intentional. You have to be honest about who benefits when you don't take that route. You have to be honest about, you know, this 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 uh, prison industrial complex. You have most people don't know about that. Let me tell you yeah. a story. So I was at uh, in the second school that I was a part of building was in the prison here in New Orleans. And the time I was coordinating humanities and arts um, uh, separately, though. So there was English humanities during the day. And then there was a transformative arts program that we were building up for the for the summer. And this is in uh, what was formerly Orleans Parish Prison and is now Orleans Justice Center. And this is a prison that's under corrective action, federal federal corrective action. And um, so I was at a education conference. It was a literacy conference. Can you just explain for people what, what that means? Federal corrective action. What does it so mean? The, yeah, this is a this is a prison who who did who has not adhered to um, any of the uh, legal guidelines for operating a prison humanely, and that already is its own, you know, <laughs> I- ironic. Just to say it fully, it's very contradictory but if you are someone who are like who's like you know a prison is certainly a part of the fabric of society and I don't mean that from a condescending space I mean that from a space of a person who's never had um the interest or the insight to imagine anything other than what has already been placed in front of them as the solution then just like you know a general person who is interested in keeping the status quo quote unquote, safe and secure and believes as in prisons as a part of that, then um, there are guidelines um, that are sort of govern how and outline how a prison is to be ran in its most um, highest functioning um, uh, state, um, one that does not further... um, and again, it's so it's so wild to think about, like the whole point of the prison is to take away the rights of those who are in prison. 
And this happens regardless of if you've been proven guilty or not. So a lot of people don't even know that. Like a pe- person, I have come to understand that when I talk specifically about the, the population of youth that I worked with who were in this prison at the age of 16, 17, right across from adult tears or sharing spaces with adults who were, again, not had not had trials, had not been proven guilty of anything. But we call this um, pre-adjudication. And so the average person is like, what does that mean? That means that you mean they don't know if they did it exactly. You mean they've been there three years and they're exactly. So, so corrective action would say that, you know, how can we do this in a way that doesn't further uh, alienate a citizen, a United States citizen from his or her or their rights? And, you know, what are the guidelines that would make this the most humane, just, fair system for this person to navigate? Um, and a corrective action would say you have failed in all of these com- departments and therefore you need federal oversight to run this prison. So um, sort of the perfect time then for school to be built in, because one of the ways in which that prison was failing was with upholding the educational rights of um, the folks who were incarcerated there, you know, the educational rights who Uh, depending on the state here till you're 23, especially if you receive special education services, which most most of the incarcerated um, youth and young adults that I was working with do. Um, But anyway, I was at an education conference that overlapped with my time there and thinking about ways in which to um, amplify literacy within the limitations of the parameters of a secure space wherein accessing technology and other things are just sort of really complicated to do. Um, Teaching reading to someone who someone gave up on teaching reading to, you know, after second grade, how do you do that? And of course the correlation between, you know, being functional literate or illiterate and being um, criminalized um, is what and what, right? So, but I want to share this story. I was checking in at the hotel of the conference or the convention center of the conference. And I was like, hey, they said, well, what school are you here for? I told them the name of their school. Like, oh, we haven't heard of that school. So I told them, you know, what the school is and where it is. This woman grabs my hand and she says, oh my God. That is just, that's incredible work. Well, I tell you what, there is a boy who robbed me. He took my ring eight years ago and you make sure he gets, he needs life in prison. What the, wow. And so, right. Uh. And so like our, our, our relationship to property, our relationship to power, our relationship to ownership um, is so perverted in a way that it sort of further detaches us from our neighbors, um, other parts 
of the human experiences that define like our real connection with one another. Here's this, this is a sister who's an elder could have been this person's grandmother or great aunt and could have said anything. And I'm I'm glad she said what she meant. I, I never, I want it to be true and real, but her real sentiments were not that, Oh, I hope he graduates one day. I hope that he's able to restore and make right the things that he said. Her mind was like, go when you the first thing that you do before you teach somebody how to read, when you go back to the jail today is look this person up and make sure he never gets out of jail because he stole my ring. Yeah, Uh, man, like the level of vengeance, the level of vengeance that like vengeance is more of a, a popular trait and a quality in society than really than anything like just like they people think of justice when sometimes when some people think of justice they think of vengeance they don't really think of ju- they think of like how do we was that that was when i was thinking of when you spoke about you know the eye for an eye you know so i taught world history for seven years um and six years six years and um when you think about ancient civilizations and how uh you think about uh, the cold, the eye for an eye and the, the archaic, right? This thing that we say we have evolved from, right? That we are, we're so much more, um, yeah, I see it on your face. Evolved is the, you know, the word that comes to mind. Yeah. But really we haven't, in order for us to evolve, we would have to reach back. We would have to say the original sin the original moment of discord, the original detachment was colonization. Mm-hmm. And once we admit that, right, this thing that was supposed to bring about the rise of civilization and was, you know, all about, you know, the mission of civilizing the world and, you know, taking us from our savagery and these things that were that were exported all over the globe the tenets of colonization would mean that we've actually been stripped from the core of our shared humanity, which is that we've always had ways that were more decentralized than centralized of handling shit when shit got, when, when conflict arise, like Mm -hmm. it just, it wasn't this, macro level thing where people who don't know you don't know your mom and them have no relationship to you or your village have no relationship to you or your story then get to judge you on the worst mistake you've ever made in your life or the series of mistakes that you've made in your life and that you don't get an opportunity to survive those mistakes that is insane People really believe, jury of your peers, people really do believe the fallacy that, you know, by selecting some random folks from your county or wherever, right, that you're getting that, that you're actually getting. And it's like, what are you talking about? You're clearly, these are strangers, like you just said. They don't know. All they're hearing is a, a literally, so a trial is, for people, that do, I've had two trials in my life, two criminal trials. Trial is basically, it's theater, right? It's a theater. And so what it is, is you get discovery, you get evidence, you put it together and both sides are, both sides are coming at it with, you're taking snapshots of history and that's all anybody's getting to see. So all anybody's getting to see from this jury who, again, total strangers to the defendant. 
is they're getting a story, a narrative given to them by maybe a persuasive storyteller that's taking one one moment in that person's time in lifetime, one moment in that per- the defendant's lifetime, and they're boiling it down. They're making it a referendum on who that person is, essentially. And and that and then you're telling the story to strangers, and they're in this setting. First of all, they're literally in a building that's paid for by the state or the federal government or whatever, and they're sitting in that environment. They're looking at a judge who's got a robe on. He looks important. He's a part of the system. You got people talking to you that you know look important. They're lawyers. They're a part of the system. So you're already in this environment that's essentially bred to dole out justice, justice, uh, and and you're getting only of what people want you to hear of this very brief moment in someone's life. And it's just like, how would you, how do you call that fair? It's not fair. I really, I really appreciate you using this metaphor for theater too, because it makes me think of the scripts, right? And so if you were just reading the script and somebody asked you, would you want to be the role of suspect? Would you want to be the role of the defendant, the victim? Nobody wants to inhabit those roles at all. Most people don't want to be the judge or the jury. Yeah. But it, but the system that we have invested in has told us that that those are the sort of limited, you know, um, that is the framework, that is the structure. But you know, I think that you have a person who's already uh, you know, the, the crazy data on things like conviction rates after the football game. If mm. LSU loses, how many young black men go to jail the next day? Mm. That's not a, that's like a fact. That's Mm -hmm. like if you Google that right now, there would, there are statisticians who work. I I believe it. Who can say, I will paint a grim picture for you that will shatter your myth of of objectivity, will shatter your myths of unbiased, and, and you will want to dream a different justice system. You will want to make it good. You would want to make it better. But most people just don't know. So I think there's work between work that exists in, in raising awareness. I find like I'm always straddling a, straddling a line when I'm working with young people, when I'm working with um, families or in community where I'm sort of saying like, here's the thing I want you to be aware of. Here's this this world that we're building that can be like this. And also here's the current world that we live in. It's this sort of, so I find myself, you know, always seeking ma'at and that spiritual principle that is, that, that is balanced. What does it look like to move about this in the most balanced way right now? Um, In the most fair way, in the most just way, how can I prepare you for, the world that we live in while also saying, and so we live in this world, you ought to be prepared to dream it new, to build it new. We got to do it again. Are you ready for that work? Um, that, that, that's what I was about to ask you. Yeah. I was going to say it's one awareness is a part of the, is one big part of the battle. Right. But I'm almost more concerned about the second part of the battle, which is execution on that awareness. Right. Cause now you have, I think of that title of the uh, climate change documentary by Al with Al Gore, Inconvenient Truth, right? Like that what we're talking about is an inconvenient truth, right? So you could make people aware of the truth and that's all good and great, but it's inconvenient for people that have a lot of other 
shit going on in front of them that isn't this, right? Like that unless they've been personally affected, even if they have a good heart, even if they care about people generally, like they have to, you have to get people to the level of taking action. And that, and that's always the biggest issue is like, you could bring awareness. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just saying, so so like- This takes me back though, not to cut your wisdom. No, no, no. It takes me yeah. back to that first part of the conversation that you were sharing around your spiritual teacher. And um, you spoke with me about your soul tribe, like your soul collective, your soul consciousness, these groups, this group of people that is meant to, if you want to talk a little bit about that, because I think the two are connected. Yeah. And there's a cosmology that um, I am grounded in that I think aligns with that and, and gets us where we need to be in terms of uh, transcending um, just the moment of awareness. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm happy. I would love to hear where you're going with that because I have a sense. Yeah. I, I, so I would say I think a great lead-in if you could just speak about the Soul Collective. Yeah. So, so, so the whole idea of the Soul Pod is is a pod of souls that whether or not we weren't, um, they're not our family necessarily. They're not, you know, they're not necessarily anybody. We, maybe they're not even our friends, right? But there are uh, there souls that have existed pre this physical plane, pre this physical vessel in this lifetime that have existed that we've always sort of had some arrangement with or connection to, and then we come into this lifetime, uh, and here they they allow we we connect and commune with these souls, this pod of souls, so that we can further uh, evolve as spirits and further evolve as, as souls so that when we leave this vessel, not only have we impacted this world, this physical world in, in a more profound way and hopefully leaving it for, uh, for the better and for so a more inclusive, a more unified space, um, but also where, you know, wherever you want to believe our souls go next, we have a more evolved spirit that then carries on. And it's essentially this collection of, um, of uh, we'll call them, and in this world, they're individuals that have high consciousness or have a, have a similar consciousness to us. And maybe we're going to help each other raise our consciousness together. That's what, that's what the soul pod is about. And that's what really, you know, interviewing you and interviewing people on this show, the whole point of this is to allow others to see uh, people who have all different viewpoints that can have insights to share about how we can tap into our own authentic essence so that we can actually collectively be more uh, uh, more open to actually engaging in the world. Instead of sometimes, you know, I feel like it's so easy to create um, barriers and create sort of categorizations about how we should be, who we are, and that kind of thing. And we get entrenched in those or we get entrenched in our personality and our ego and it prevents us from living a life that we know we truly want to live. And sometimes we don't have the the words for that. We don't have the way to express it, or maybe we can't even tap into it ourselves. And so this this podcast is really aimed at trying to give people uh, different viewpoints and perspectives to be able to see where we might be stuck and how we can kind of you know free up so that we can commune with our pod of souls and make the world a better place and make our and, and evolve our spirits. Yeah. So in Yoruba cosmology, the soul pod, I think, would be akin to an Egbe. So an Egbe is a group of people who are a group of souls who have assignments on the planet and are assigned to support one another in achieving those, accomplishing those assignments, fulfilling those uh, agreements, if you will. 
And so some of these people are people that, you know, you wouldn't normally, you'd be like, oh, I don't think we would normally be friends, except for spiritually, we're assigned to do some work together. What is the work that we have to get done together? It's the thing that sort of like allows you to settle more petty grievances or to do the restorative work, to to do the relational work, to nurture a relationship um, rather than abandoning at the first sign of, you know, uh, uh, not misalignment, certainly alignment, but the certain a certain challenge that is more personality based, et cetera, et cetera. Or you think about your collaborator collaborators who do believe deeply um, or sort of obsessing or fixated on the certain things that you are also fixated on. And so you think about your egg bay as the, the people who are assigned to support you in fulfilling your destiny. And the destiny always being something that that supports um, with the elevation of humanity, the 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 uh, very act of you fulfilling your destiny on the planet, whether it is related to the same issues or altruistic issues or social justice issues, et cetera, is neither here or there. It's the act, the very act of you achieving your destiny is the thing that's sort of like you know, puts the cog in the machine and makes it so that if we're all achieving our destinies that, you know, we were assigned to or doing our souls, you know, our soul, completing our soul's mission that we all elevate as a result of it. And so um, I think that part of my work is to raise awareness, but I'm often more interested and doing work with people who are very clear on what it is they are passionate about. I don't, my job is not for you to care, to make everybody care about the death of mass incarceration. That's not my job. Yeah. Right. I do, however, want to be in alignment. I am in alignment with those. I'm going to be in the room and at the table with those who, who are doing that work. You see what I'm saying? Oh, totally. I want yeah. to be at, that that's where I, you will find me. If you say, oh, I know I'm living in the same city with this person and I've never met them because our work, you know, is not, our work is our own and it certainly has not intersected yet. If it is meant to be, it's going to be because we're going to find this ourselves doing the work. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's it too. I think sometimes we get distracted by like trying to convince everybody else to care about the thing that we care about. And that's kind of like a trick of the soul. That's a trick of the mind. I learned that um, the mind at a, at a silent retreat a couple years ago, I learned how tricky the mind can be. So when you're trying to focus on something, just on like, you know, developing a, uh, an equanimous framework and you're just, I am just focused on my breath and that is all I'm doing. Your mind will be like, are we sleeping? You're like, no, we're not doing the sleep in mind. We're, we're just focused on breathing. Are we doing the memory? Are we creating something? Are we reflecting? Are we doing a comedy? Are we laughing in our mind? So the mind will just be like, until you can uh, master it and allow yourself to focus on the thing that you're meant to focus on. I think that's the same thing in general is that you meet people from time to time that sort of a, they, I have had all kinds of people sort of give me, oh, I appreciate the work that you're doing. And, you know, I could never do that. And I, or, 
you know, it's sort of sort of steeped in this. I'm not interested in the glory of the thing. I'm simply saying like this is a this is something that I have to see through. And so and this is my medium. I use the music as a medium to, to get there. It's like my loudspeaker, you know, um, and my art is, is going to embody justice. It's going to embody restoration. It's going to embody truth and authenticity. And I wanted to inspire you not to do what I'm doing, but to do what is the thing that is inside of you. That's like, I do actually really care about this thing. And I do actually want. And I think that for people who have access to resources who haven't quite figured out what it is they care about beyond acquiescing resources, that to me is that moment of like the shift. That's the moment where you're like, when you encounter something that's real and righteous, that's the choice. It's like a test. It's like, and you have the resources to change this, whether your resource is time, money, space, uh, platform, what have you. And if you choose not to do anything except for say, oh, good job, Gary. I love that you have that podcast about mindfulness. That's great charm. Great job giving death to mass incarceration and standing up for the youth. But you're just like, you're just, you just, you just have the resources and not realizing that now you are actually a barrier because your role in that moment of, of us linking up, that's the role you were supposed to play. Mm. I was going to come in the room with the idea, with the story, with the narrative, with the truth, with the experiences, with the people who need you. And you were supposed to say, and I have the resources. Let's go. Let's go build something beautiful. Except for most people, don't do that. They think that the very act of them receiving the story passively, like, oh, I just learned so much. I learned so much about the fact that Louisiana is the incarceration capital of the world. And there are more people in prison than were actually enslaved. And, and I just, man, and that does not put you on the right side of history. Mm-hmm.